I used to get into like some bad traps with diet where everything was just on or off. There was no such thing as, oh, like you have a big blow one day, just get back on it tomorrow. You know what I mean? It's, it's no different than a business. Like you, some days I may just not feel it. I may not be productive, but it's okay. So I'm going to just work on Saturday. It's fine. But it's not, you just can't let yourself get into the trap of, all right, well, I screwed up on Monday. So now I'm not going to work for the rest of the week. You know, people self-sabotage with food in that way. But imagine if you did that with your work, you're like, oh, I just woke up late and I I just wasn't productive. So then don't let, you're not going to let that ruin your Tuesday through Friday. Just get back on the horse. This is the CMO and Joe podcast. We interview today's most inspiring chief marketing officers and savvy marketers of lucrative direct-to-consumer e-commerce companies, bringing you insightful stories and tips on marketing, sales, branding, and much more. We bring you the best lessons from the best. Let's get started with your host, Joe Momo. We are live. Welcome to the podcast, Erica. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to have you on the podcast. Uh, we talked a little bit off air. Uh, I think you have an amazing story. Um, but before we get into all that, how about give us a little origin story of who Erica is? Sure. Um, so I'm Erica Lou Williams. I'm based in Northern California um, in the United States. And I'm the founder of Great Nola, which is delicious, low sugar granola that's infused with unique and functional superfoods. So I've got some classic flavors like the original on cacao, but then I have the world's first black granola, which is infused with activated charcoal. I have a matcha flavor, turmeric, chai. All of them are super clean ingredient profile and most importantly, really yummy. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, from what I can see, your stuff is awesome. Um, But kind of take us back a little bit. Um, So I think you went to Stanford, is that correct? Yes. Awesome. So you graduated from Stanford and then how did you get to kind of where you are today? Sure. Um, So the path into becoming a granola entrepreneur is as random as it sounds. So I graduated Stanford in 2008. And this is when, you know, the tech boom was kind of just on its rise. And so being in the Bay Area, I naturally um, landed a career in the tech industry, um, working for small startups as as well as um, bigger companies like Yahoo and um, a startup that ended up getting acquired by Intuit, which are the makers of QuickBooks. Um, So I started uh, in the tech industry. I was building my career for maybe about four plus years. And it was maybe around that time I started to see a lot of my um, colleagues, people around me kind of venture off and do their own thing. The company that I mentioned that got acquired by Intuit, I got to experience that as a very junior employee. And it made me kind of think twice about my career path. Um, I think I've always had a very traditional sense of, Hey, you know, you got to jump from job to job. It's super linear. And for the first time I opened my eyes to the fact that, Hey, like you could venture off and do your own thing. It could be however big or small as you want. Um, but as long as you're bringing value to, you know, a market, you could also drive value for yourself and creating, um, creating a company. And so, when I had this itch to start my own business, I didn't have any good ideas. I always thought about what problems I would solve through the lens of tech because it was the only industry experience that I had. Um, the granola itself was completely separate. It was kind of born out of this cleanse that my husband and I do every single year, basically clean eating, no soy, no refined sugars, no dairy, none of the bad stuff. And we got frustrated when we couldn't find healthy snacks in stores that could satisfy a sweet tooth besides fruit. And so 
I ended up taking it to the kitchen, creating my own granola recipes and clean ingredients like organic coconut oil, lower sugar. And it ended up becoming not just our favorite like snack when we were on this diet, but it was a year around staple. So I put the two together and decided that, you know, maybe I could just launch granola as my product and got a humble start at the farmer's market. So I was working my nine to five. I would bake at home after work, package everything up in time for the farmer's market on Saturday and just started that way. Super small. And you know, the idea was just to get proof of concept and just make sure people loved it as much as my husband did and my close friends and family did and make sure it was viable. And then eventually I got it into all the big tech offices. So my granola is or was pre-COVID supplied at Google, Twitter, Facebook, thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds every month into these offices. And then um, I also sell direct to consumer. So I sell on Amazon on my website. And then I have a limited retail distribution. I'm maybe in about a hundred stores right now. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, one thing you did touch on was COVID and obviously a lot of uh, people were affected by COVID and still being affected. Um, But for you personally, how is that kind of, how have you been able to navigate through those uncertain times and sure. Um, so it's been a tough year, uh, as you know, many small businesses have experienced and just, um, to kind of set the context again, like my bread and butter was supplying these corporate offices, um, their granola and thousands of employees across hundreds of companies would basically see great granola in their offices and have it at their place of work for free all year round. And I built the business using that model in that being kind of the first bread and butter channel to kind of build my production, you know, have a source of revenue and cash flow and seed the brand to ultimately consumers who you hopefully would eventually buy it in the store, eventually buy it online. And so come March when COVID hit and California being one of the first states to react uh, within the U.S., suddenly POs were getting canceled um, last minute. And then I was hit with really massive returns and every office basically shut down as they still are and went to remote work, which is looking, you know, as time goes on, like it's going to be more indefinite, um, especially as these tech companies can adjust to remote work. Um, So it was highly reactive in the beginning. Um, It was all about just number one, trying to salvage purchase orders that were already being produced in en route. And then um, dealing with returns where, you know, my big distributor basically had about $50,000 worth of product that they needed me to take back. And I think that when you are in this kind of, uh, do or die situation as an entrepreneur, you, you have no choice, but to figure it out. And so I was able to find other channels, kind of like these grocery or fruit delivery companies, Um, where I was able to kind of repack my product because it's typically in bulk for these offices, basically repacked it, repacked it into more of like a consumer retail friendly pack. And then like was able to sell it all off to these grocery delivery companies. And that is a channel that I'm trying to focus on now, which, um, you know, the rise of these meal delivery companies, these, um, food salvaging companies where they, you know, deliver fruit, but maybe it's not perfect fruit or it's food, but maybe it's not perfect packaging, these are all on a rise. Everyone is kind of shopping online um, more than they ever were. And so I'm looking for ways to kind of still go B2B, but it's kind of B2B to C um, and get kind of the brand into these households and get good volume orders at the same time. 
one thing you mentioned was when you're an entrepreneur, sometimes you have your back against the wall and you have to find that resilience to keep moving forward. For you growing up, were you always, did you always have that entrepreneur gene or were you more kind of fell into um, entrepreneurship and kind of yeah. this roller coaster? Sure. Um, I grew up never thinking that I was going to be an entrepreneur. And my progression has been, I'd say like across the spectrum from like one side to the other side. Um, so actually growing up, I wanted to be a homemaker. Uh, yeah, it's, it's crazy. So like, I mean, I was on a, a very well pedigreed path, um, as far as, so my background, I was actually a competitive swimmer. I, uh, qualified for the Olympic trials when I was 13. So eighth grade, I went to compete at the U S Olympic swimming trials. And my path was kind of set from there where I knew at a pretty young age, Hey, I'm going to either go to Stanford or Berkeley or UCLA. By the time I was 15, I knew it was going to either be Stanford or Berkeley. And it was kind of a given I was going to get in so long that I kept up my swimming. And I think like, so once I got into college and I signed with Stanford, swimming always kind of was the straight and narrow path. And then of course, post swimming, you know, the goal is to just, you know, start a career. It's not like you make, you're not a big name if you're a swimmer. Um, but I, like, I think from a young age, things were always just laid out and I thought I had a plan to the future. And another side note was my parents were also married at the time. And my mom was super hands-on raised me and my two brothers. I had a great childhood and wanted to be that hands-on mom. And so it was in college that my parents went through a divorce and I kind of saw how, you know, being a homemaker, not having financial stability as a woman that can get turned upside down, you know, in that kind of situation. And that kind of gave me my hunger to just be really career driven because I never wanted to be financially dependent on a man and nothing, you know, negative towards my father, great relationship. Um, but that was like, that literally kind of flipped my ideals upside down where I felt like, you know, I'm going to get married after college. I'm going to have kids young and I'm going to be a homemaker. I really want to like be hands on with my kids. By the way, I don't have kids yet. Um, and then I got this hunger to just like be career driven and feel like I can always make sure that I'm financially independent. And that's what launched my drive to be, you know, climb the corporate ladder. And so I always thought, you know, maybe one day I'll be a CMO or whatever path it would take to be a see something. And every job is going to build on the last one. And I'm going to like leap from, you know, on the corporate ladder. And then it wasn't until mid, you know, kind of mid career that I started thinking about, you know, what if I could start my own thing? And it, it, it that was drawn from just seeing other people who now four or five years out of college started their own businesses or, working for the companies that ended up having an exit and seeing that, Hey, you know what? Like if I'm worried about family life one day, as well as like this hunger to like establish a career and make a, you know, put a stamp on things, I can maybe do both if I start my own thing, you know? So that was a lot of my drive, but that was definitely not a linear path where I thought maybe things were pretty well defined by the time I was like 16 years old. So that was, it was just like, yeah, looking back, it's like, you don't know things change, you know? And like, I thought I would, you know, never be like, number one, I ended up retiring swimming in college. And that was something that you, I never thought I would do. I'd never quit swimming, but I did. And that kind of put me on this path of like working in college, getting my foot in the door in the tech industry. And then everything kind of built from there. 
Absolutely. It's, it's funny that you mentioned athletics. Um, me, myself, I actually played college football uh, as a scholarship athlete there. Had to retire as well. Too many, mm-hmm. too many concussions. But uh, for you, Erica, how do you see swimming help in your entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial path? Or how, how do you see that uh, affecting or contributing to your, to your success? Sure. I, I think 100%. And I think that um, it contributes to my work ethic. Um, but it doesn't necessarily contribute to me landing in entrepreneurship. So I would say that swimming's given me the discipline to kind of appreciate the grind, not be afraid of hard work, be able to manage time excellently, um, not just get, you know, not get inundated by just having a lot on your plate, because I think that nothing beats the schedule that I had when I was in high school. Like literally you're waking up at 5am for practice in the morning, you got to go to school, then you got to practice and you got three hours to eat, do your homework, go to, you know, go to sleep, rinse, repeat. Um, so that gave me the work ethic to not be afraid to have drive and work hard at it. But I think that that could have translated very easily into a corporate career or an entrepreneurial career. Gotcha. So, so, so if you have to boil down your skills or maybe your superpower into one unique uh, skill or superpower, what would you say that would be? Um, I'm not afraid to just execute and start things. So I think that there's different kind of founders and CEOs. Like I think on one side, you have people who are all in the strategy and all in the vision. And then you have people who are just like executor operators, not afraid to take that first step. I would say that I'm the latter. And in a way, I would say the strategy, the big vision is actually more of a weakness. But when you're starting a business, you can do vision and strategy all day long, but you have to go out and just like not be afraid to take that first step, to fall, to trip, to figure things out, get up, do it again, and test small. And I think that has always been one of my strengths is that I'm pretty action-oriented. So even if it's something in my personal life outside of, you know, my business, I'm the type of person that like, if I say something that I'm going to do, I usually do it and I usually do it quickly. Um, so I think that's super important when you're, when you're just starting, um, because likely your vision, your strategy, your product will change over time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I talk to my mentors and they always say, everybody has ideas. It's uh, the dollars and cents are made in the execution. Um, that's totally true. Uh, ideas and things change, plans change. And um, just have to adjust and pivot and uh, kind of roll with, roll with the punches. For sure. Uh, and, and in terms of resources, uh, did you have any mentors or what, what were some of the things that helped you along your path um, yeah. being an entrepreneur? Um, I think a lot of networking has been really important. So um, it's so interesting because when I was in my tech career, you know, my boss or just the company would always encourage you like, Oh, if you're a marketer, like go network with other marketers, go to this happy hour. I just never really got into it. And maybe it kind of shows that, you know, how much more passionate I am about my business than I was building anyone else's company, even though I thought I was super passionate in my role. But, um, basically I went from, you know, having only worked in tech for four years. So I'm still pretty junior in my career to, starting a business as a first-time entrepreneur in an industry that I have no familiarity with. So the first step was literally like finding out, Oh, how do I sell things at the farmer's market? How do I package my product? How do I even like think about procuring ingredients, all all this stuff? Like you can Google that all day long, but the best and quickest way is to just go out to your network and ask for help. 
Um, and eventually, you know, you start building that tribe or just the people who kind of have been there, done that, have worked in the industry and happy to help. So I wouldn't say that there's any on one resource or one mentor, but it's kind of the combination of hundreds of them that um, have kind of been open to chatting. You know, of many of them, I've built really great uh, relationships and even friendships since. Um, but I think that so much of it is just getting a little bit of mind share from hundreds of people and drawing from that and then applying it into your own world or your own business. Mm, absolutely. And yeah, I just want to quickly just drill down into that a little bit more than that working piece. Um, what would you say would be the best ways to network with somebody? Like if somebody wanted to reach out to Erica right now to pick your brain, how should they go about uh, reaching out uh, to a cold, cold sure. person? Um, I think a nice authentic message on LinkedIn or on, um, via email, that's all it takes. So people often will just hit me up cold and just be like, Hey, you know, I found out your story through here and like, I'm looking to do something similar. I'd love to kind of chat and learn more about your journey or what's your advice on this. And I'm always, always happy to get on a call or just give time because, Honestly, it may be something that's specific to my industry, which is the natural foods industry. It's a very friendly and collaborative one, but people have always been so helpful to me from the beginning that it's just the cult. It's just like the natural culture. And like, I want to be able to do that back, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm constantly doing that with other founders all the time. And I think LinkedIn is a great tool. Um, and it's just a short, brief message, you know, Hey, like I'm a big fan of your brand. I'd love to connect as founders. If you know, no agenda would just love to hear your story, your journey and like kind of share mine and that's it. And most people will say yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one person told me that the best thing you can do to connect with somebody is to be interested and not so much interesting. Um, and I think that's totally true. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Engaging what the person's saying. Um, one thing you said earlier that also kind of struck me as interesting was I mentioned D2C is exploding because of the pandemic. People are selling over online more. Um, and during my research, I saw that you recently had a new re website refresh of, uh, of, of the Great NOLA website. So I'm just curious, what, what, what are some of the um, components of a great uh, uh, D2C e-commerce website? Sure. Um, so I think number one, making sure that your key differentiators are highlighted immediately. Um, I think that that was a big focus as far as the content goes, which is okay. Like I see that it's granola, but what makes you different? Okay. You have unique superfood flavors made with clean ingredients, low sugar before that was not super prominent in a very, um, easy to kind of get way. And then, um, I think another part that I optimize on this site is social proof and credibility. I did have social proof in the form of customer testimonials, but you know, one of the things that I've, I pride myself on is having built kind of like this influencer arsenal in a very organic way where even Halle Berry has storied the product on her Instagram. And so that's like something that was hidden before in a one-time blog where I kind of talked about it, but it's like, why am I not just putting that front and center? You know, Halle Berry literally said I could eat the whole bag and <laughs> no, like if I have quotes and I have this real estate testimonials, why not maybe push people who are a little bit more influenced, influential than kind of random customer names? Um, you know, the addition of press logos, that was something that was kind of buried before. And now that's also front, you know, front and center. So 
the idea is obviously number one, have them land on your site, instantly see social proof, instantly get what your kind of unique key differentiators are. Um, and then also other small tweaks that I did was, you know, on the front, you know, kind of like on the hero scroll, I have a section that talks about the brand and the why I started. And before that copy was very much about me and my journey, which many people are interested in. But at the end of the day, if someone is looking for a product that would solve their needs, or it's a gap that they have in, you know, finding other brands, make them the hero, kind of focus it on them. So it could be language tweaks like, like you, I struggled with, you know, finding healthy and, you know, tasty granolas or snacks in the market versus, Hey, this is my story and why I started, but just kind of make the customer the hero a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of incorporating them into your messaging and not yeah. just so me, 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 but also right. Right. That value as well. Um, so say they purchase something uh, on your website. How do you, how do you maintain a great customer experience? Shoot uh, throughout their customer journey. Yeah. So, um, number one, I have an email flytrap. So of course, as you see on many e-commerce sites, there's a, Hey, you know, here's an offer 10% off your first order. And then of course that drops them into my email funnel. Um, and so I have a series of welcome emails that, you know, talk about the brand, but then also kind of show them the value beyond just the product and like the benefits and the flavors, but then also the community aspect, the content aspect. Um, the social proof aspect. So there's definitely a, a well thought out journey from, you know, when you first kind of add your email um, to the list. And then um, when people are purchasing, similarly, I have another kind of automated flow of emails, which come from me as a founder, where, you know, if you place your first purchase, you get a thank you right away from me as the founder. And then, you know, there's other tidbits about the products or like the benefits of the ingredients that are meant to kind of educate you and get you excited. Um, I think time to fulfillment is super important too. So, I mean, back in the day, of course, I used to handwrite notes and everything and that doesn't <laughs> scale anymore. But um, I think that's super important, which is like, you know, how they're receiving the product, you know, having a great insert. That's actually something that I need to work on is having an insert that's just a little bit more personal. Um, and then, you know, then the ultimate thing is just making sure that the product delivers and they actually like really, really like it. But there's so much that goes into the kind of life cycle and touch points with the customer before they actually get the product that I think are super important to implement and, and that adds to the buildup. Absolutely. What's, uh, what's, what so, sort of social media platforms are your favorite at the moment? Um, are you at Instagram, TikTok? Sure. What, what, yeah. What? Um, Instagram has been my kind of traditional platform to market the brand and it's definitely changed over the past couple of years. So I've, I used to do a lot more heavy, um, Instagram influencer stuff, uh, a couple years ago. And this is like before the algorithm changed and, you know, you could easily get like a thousand likes on your photos and then things started to change. Um, the influencer part is still the same. I would say, funnel in that it's always built on, you know, building authentic relationships. So similar to how you might reach out to someone on LinkedIn, if it's another founder or person that you want to network with professionally, I approach influencers in the same way where it's not super transactional. It's more about them and Hey, I'd love to share my product and I'd be honored for you to try it. And then there's no obligation for them to post. So that formula I think works. Um, that's always worked for me on Instagram. I mean, me getting the product into Halle Berry's hands was 
literally doing that, but with her trainer. And then the trainer shared the product with Hallie and then it just showed up on her stories randomly. So it's all through like authentic outreach, um, and not being transactional and not obligating. Um, TikTok is something that literally now I am looking into trying to kind of create a playbook there too. Um, I think TikTok is, you know, influencers are not monetizing yet. So you could probably reach out to people who are really big and they may not expect say like sponsorship or payment and I don't pay anyone. So that's, I'm not looking to like do a big paid influencer strategy at this point. So I'm trying to dabble there. I think, you know, I don't know how much it is important for a brand to focus, like a brand like mine to focus on building out the page versus just building out an arsenal of influencers. But I think it's completely untapped. I think it's going to be the future, uh, the future Instagram in a way. So I'm, I'm trying to lean in while the getting's good before, you know, it becomes like an Instagram and the algorithms change or people are all asking for money. And yeah, but it's like, honestly, I wasn't a big social media person personally. So I had to learn Instagram, you know, a couple years ago just for the business. And then, you know, once I dove in, it was not too bad to figure out. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, it's totally the same way. And with TikTok, I think, um, there's some exciting, um, I mean, the algorithm is so powerful there and, um, just to reach, um, I'm not, I'm not too sure about the dances yet, but uh, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, one hypothetical question I did want to ask you, Erica, is say you were given 50% more budget. Sure. Um, what sort of things would you implement into your um, social media strategy or even just your marketing strategy in general to sure. really get an ROI back? Yeah. And um, I'm still at the point where most of my online sales are organic and I don't, invest too much in paid yet. Um, I do a little bit on Amazon, but I do it very frugally, um, where everything is first purchase profitable. But I do think that I can probably extend that, um, and be a little bit more aggressive. But now that I did this website revamp, I didn't want to invest in any kind of like top of the funnel paid acquisition until I felt my site was in a better place. Um, I, I mean, honestly, number one, I would need someone like a growth marketer, uh, to just help me test different acquisition campaigns. So, I mean, I would say first and foremost, the budget would go towards some Facebook, Instagram ads. I do think that that's where I would want to dabble still. And then, um, you know, I've tried affiliate marketing. I don't think my brand's ready for that. The brand's not super known. So affiliate is kind of obsolete, uh, until you build that. So that, you know, I tested that, that wasn't that successful, but I think, um, you know, getting someone who is kind of a full final growth marketer who can not just think about acquisition and channels to, to test paid stuff, whether it's endorsement, social ads, you know, PPC, but think full funnel from like the cart experience to upsell to, okay, they're in my email list. And what are we doing to constantly segment on folks who did this, but didn't do that. And just all those different tweaks that is a full-time job. Um, and it's not necessarily my expertise. It's stuff that of course I've had to learn along the way, but you know, in my technical in Clavia or my email marketing system, not, I'm not the best. Um, have I done this before? Not really. Um, but I'm always drawing different ideas from other founders that I'm constantly networking with, with, and they're just, they give you this very tactical ideas like, Oh yeah, this brand, what they do is in their cart, they just have a, Oh, Hey, add this to your cart and get 30% off this item. Or 
in the cart, it's a timer where it's like, oh, you have three minutes to like check out and get this like offer. And it's like for a dollar off. And there's so many different ideas that I think you could test, but it's all about prioritizing them, putting the resources to them and then actually implementing it and then measuring it. But there's hundreds of those things where I'm like, okay, I just need to start at least a sheet, you know, where I can like (laughs) do the little ice matrix, like impact cost effort, and then see where to focus. But it's inundating when you're managing production, operations, sales, you know, HR, all that stuff. So. Wow. I mean, you're just super woman, super woman over here. Trying. um, (laughs) All the different hats. Um, How how do you manage? um, I know with the pandemic, it's a little bit, a little bit more challenging for people working from home and kind of balancing work-life balance. But uh, for you personally, how have you been able to just keep all the balls in the air and stay sane at the same time? Yeah. Um, again, I think um, back to sort of what I feel one of my best skills is, is just like getting things done. If I say I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. If it's something's on my plate, I, I'm, I may procrastinate, but I, I don't let balls drop. Um, and again, I think that does come from kind of the whole athlete mentality and having to juggle a super rigorous schedule from a very young age. Um, so number one, I know I always get things done. Um, I still, you know, write lists on paper sometimes, sometimes that just helps me kind of organize things. Um, but at the end of the day, like if things are super important, they have to get done with me. I know they will get done. Um, I think another thing that I'm starting to think about as just how to scale myself is just, you know, like when the pandemic hit, there were certain tasks that I started to take back to save on money instead of paying someone else to outsource it. And then after doing like things like operational things, like bookkeeping, accounting. And then I kind of got into a mode where I'm like, wow, I'm completely inundated by these things that I hate to do that are pointless for me to spend my time on. And then I kind of came to this like moment where I was like, this isn't worth the money savings. You know what I mean? Saving, okay, you're saving $50 an hour, but what could you spend that hour doing that would actually drive sales or top line? So there's constantly that balance of, you know, trying to do everything because you want to be frugal or you don't want to like spend on contractors or people to help you do it. But at the end of the day, you have to think about what your skill is, what's the best use of your time. And if you had that time back, you know, maybe it is worth spending a couple hundred dollars on someone else to do it. Um, so there's that balance that I kind of oscillated from the pandemic to now where it's just like, all right, I'm, I'm willing to pay $200 a month for this software, but it's going to automate things and save me, you know, 15 hours a month, right? That's way more worth the, you know, that's way more worth it. Um, and then I think important, you know, last but not least is just connecting with the people around you. So outside of business, it's like, you know, connecting with your family, connecting with my husband, going on walks, trying to eat healthy, working out, I, I, that's a priority as well. So that kind of helps keep the balance uh, holistically. Yeah, absolutely. And my next question is a little bit more selfish. I'm always curious. I'm a consumer behavior nerd, but how have your behaviors changed during pandemic? Have you been eating out more, eating in more, sure. working out at home? Yeah, um, it's so interesting. Um, when the pandemic hit, I was super on my grind, like super, super healthy. Uh, you know, usually when things are really bad in the business or like I'm dealing with a big challenge, I get maybe into a little bit of my control freak mode where it's like, all right, well, this is out of my control in this part of my world. But what I can control is me and my health and how I feel. And that starts with like how I eat and how active I am. So I've actually found, you know, I think a lot of people will spiral negatively 
sometimes, like if you have a trigger, if you have something that's bad and it's out of your control, then maybe you stop taking care of yourself. I've just always from day one made sure that I didn't set that culture with myself where it's like, okay, if things are especially hard, this means I really need to rein this element of kind of self-care in, right? Because that is something I can control. Um, so initially during COVID, I was really on my grind. I was super active. I was eating really clean. I felt great. Um, and then I would say, of course, like this becomes more normalized. And then sometimes you kind of find yourself veering away from that. Um, so it's always like very seasonal. Like you can't try to be perfect all the time, even though I'm far from perfect, but it's like, you know, it definitely has gotten to a point where, Oh, I'm just like, whatever, let's eat out. Let's do all this stuff. You know, like who cares? We're just going to enjoy it. We're not going anywhere anyway. Right. Uh, wearing PJs all day long, but it, it always just comes into balance at some point. Like you just, you it waves. And then if you like get too far off the track, something will bring me back into balance. But I, I understand that there is this kind of oscillating nature. And I think if you can accept it and you don't let yourself spiral too much, then usually I come back, but I'm trying to eat healthier. (laughs) I mean, it's been a lot of like, Oh, you know, the favorite takeout spots uh, on the weekend, but I try to leave that for the weekend. Yeah, absolutely. I'm definitely a victim of quarantine 15 as well. Um, It's very hard to eat healthy. (laughs) Yeah. So you just got to like start cooking and maybe just set that framework of like, okay, maybe just the weekends I'm going to indulge or, you know, every other day, like I, I used to get into like some bad traps with diet, um, where everything was just on or off. There was no such thing as, Oh, like you have a big blow one day, just get back on it tomorrow. You know what I mean? It's, it's no different than a business. Like you, some days I may just not feel it. I may not be productive, but it's okay. So I'm going to just work on Saturday. It's fine, but it's not, you just can't let yourself get into the trap of, all right, well, I screwed up on Monday. So now I'm not going to work for the rest of the week. You know, people, yeah. I think self-sabotage with food in that way. But imagine if you did that with your work, you're like, oh, I just woke up late and I, I, I just wasn't productive. So then don't let, you're not going to let that ruin your Tuesday through Friday. You know what I mean? Right, just right. get back on the course. <laughs> exactly. No, I love that. I love that, Erica. Um, and do you still swim? I know you said you're retired, but do you still swim? I don't. That was, um, I want to say, I hope great Nola is kind of like my path to redemption because swimming was something that I fell into. I was talented, but I didn't really like the work that came with it. Like I didn't like what I had to do for it, which was practice, which is 99% of the work. Right. And I think the key difference with the business is that I actually enjoy the grind. I love the process. Of course, I'm trying to get to like a certain end goal or outcome, but let's just say, you know, things don't pan out to what I want it to be. I will still be so grateful for what I've been learning and I've been enjoying what I do every day. I enjoy the people I connect with. So I'm fulfilled by the process. Um, swimming wasn't that I literally just wanted to get to, you know, a certain time, a certain goal. I hated practice. I only <laughs> like the meets. And unfortunately you only have like two big meets in a year. So you're pretty miserable, like 360 yeah. days of the year. Um, so I don't really swim very much. <laughs> I don't swim. <laughs> fully retired. <laughs> yeah. Fully retired. I mean, if there's a beach, I'll, I'll, I love the water, but there's no way I'm putting a cap and goggles on just swimming for fun. There's no way. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, um, the cleats are on the wall, so I'm the same yeah. way. Um, yeah, I mean, I only have a few more questions here for you, Erica. Uh, what's maybe something that you're proud of that we haven't touched on in the interview so far? Oh, like business wise? Be personal, it could be professionally. Uh, 
I mean, I've bootstrapped the business. Um, like this is kind of like a, such a hypothetical, but I mean, if COVID didn't hit, I would have hit well over a million dollars in revenue completely bootstrapped. So that for my industry being consumer packaged goods and food and beverage, you know, it's something that I feel proud of just because I feel that a lot of people in my industry, kind of similar to the tech industry, people are raising all the time. Sometimes they need it. Sometimes it's just because that's the thing to do. And I think the more that I talk to other people who, you know, most of them have raised or, you know, had to take on debt. Um, it's something that I've prided myself and it makes me want to kind of continue to try to bootstrap this, um, for as long as I possibly can. I think in my industry, you do have to take on capital in order to actually like expand into grocery or have a national retail presence, but getting this far without, you know, with just maybe like $30,000 of initial kind of money that I put into the business myself and then breaking even pretty quickly because I started going after these corporate offices. That's something that I'm pretty proud of. That's awesome. And I'm, I'm excited to continue to watch your journey and I think you're going to do you. amazing things in the future. Um, if our listeners have any other questions, they want to pick your brain. What are the best? Uh, I know you mentioned LinkedIn. Are there any other ones that? Uh, yeah. Um, LinkedIn is fine. Uh, my email is Erica, E-R-I-C-A at Great Nola, which is G-R, the number eight, N-O-L-A.com. Anyone can reach out to me. Um, always happy to chat and just kind of swap ideas, share my story, learn about yours and just see how we can help each other. I'm always happy to do that. Cool. And I'll make sure to add the, uh, the links in the description so they can reach out to you. Um, yeah. I love to end the interview with the guests saying uh, a word or a phrase to describe their brand. So my last question to you, Erica, is what's one word or phrase to describe Erica Liu's brand? My personal brand, personal brand, which obviously has extended into the products. Um, <laughs> Bold. I love, you know, I think bold is something that actually when I signed with Stanford, they have like your bio that you have to answer some questions like, who do you admire? What's your favorite movie? They ask, um, you know, what are three words to describe yourself? And this is my 17 year old self answering these questions. Um, I'm now double that age. I use bold, fun, and feisty. And bold is actually, you know, one of the top brand values for Great Nola too. And it's reflected in the colors, the fonts, I think just the messaging of just inspiring people to be hungry for greatness, not just in what you eat, but what you do and what you're pursuing in life. Um, so bold has kind of stuck with me since I was 17. This episode of the CMO and Joe podcast has ended, but be sure to subscribe for more business strategies and tactics to help you create the profitable and successful business you've always dreamed of. And don't forget to rate and review so we can continue to bring you the best content. See you on the next episode.